you know you do see practices where it might be five men who have been there for 25 years and frankly they're practices that if they don't change there won't be a tomorrow for them welcome to this episode of the business of architecture and design where we rejoin our host isabel tolland director of aileen sage architects and our guest bvn's ninochka tichkowski who talks more about how everything changed once she became a principal and the groundbreaking robotics research project BVN is working on with UTS. And now, over to Isabel. So becoming a principal, your sort of general day-to-day activities must have shifted a bit in terms of the role that you played. Is that that correct? Yeah, definitely it did. Um, I mean, the way BVN is structured, a principal leads most... There will be a principal leading just about every project um, and we do, we are quite project-focused, so we, we genuinely want to stay with projects. So that part of it didn't necessarily change, but um, I think the biggest shift for me was moving from that sort of 2IC role into the person that was leading the project was a bit different Mm. and um, that threw up challenges in its own right and I actually do think that was the first time that I ever felt that being a female had an influence. What what I found was, and this was a little while ago, remember, where a lot of our clients were male at that point um, and probably slightly more older school than they are now, when they realised that the buck stopped with me, they were a little bit more unnerved Right. When I was two IC, they were totally fine. Yeah, <laughs> so right. it was really interesting to observe that shift. Mm. And that was something I had to navigate. And then the, the we were also scaling up on projects, so they were getting more complex, uh, larger as well. And then it was really balancing out, you know, being part of a business and contributing to the business in ways that I hadn't done before versus um, project work and, and being part of project teams. So... And obviously being a principal, you're learning, you know, you're also all of a sudden getting access to um, all of the information about the actual business, which took quite a while to learn, actually. Mm. It's not something that, you know, you kind of immediately understand. Like, my, no. you know, we the first time I sat on the board and went to a board meeting, I was like, God, what does all this stuff even mean? Um, and so it takes a while to work through all the, the jargon, the lingo, the reporting in particular, I found quite difficult. Mm. And... Um, understanding all the financial structures and um, projects and then there's the governance and policies and people and so you know we had a really great group and I think you just it's easier when you've got people to learn from and in a format like ours you do have people to learn from I think if you I actually think sometimes it's harder being a sole practitioner where you're actually trying to learn all that stuff yourself yeah Um, and I think that's actually a real challenge so did you think that anything you had done at uni prepared you for that once you started oh no, this absolutely yeah. not. No. <laughs> no, I think I think it wouldn't have been great if they actually taught you about business at university. No, I don't think it did. Actually, I think it was very design focused. And so, with that set up, when they introduced, how many principals did they um, appoint at that time? We had so, six okay. all at once. And how many were fe- female and how many male? Uh, three female. So uh, myself, Abby Galvin, and Jane Williams. Uh-huh. Um, Jane's since left. Beaver but Abby and I are still there and, you know, we've now got uh, some other female principals. Oh, actually, and we also had Sarita Chand who was there as well and she was she had been a principal for a while um, and was probably at that time one of the very few female principals in a 
sort of significant architectural practice. How did the succession work then as well from, like, once you're a principal, how do you then create roles beyond principal as well? Well, actually, they're quite self-determined within us. I mean, to some extent, what they are, whatever other role that you might have is really often led by people's passions and needs in the business. So, you know, uh, if you're particularly passionate about a field or um, a level of inquiry or instilling something into the business um, or a new business model, then it's actually, it's sort of on each of us to make that contribution into the practice. Uh, the only other thing that we really have is that you get nominated, you nominate for the board. And so um, that's something that's in addition. Really, it's just at that time, it was the managing, oh, sorry, national director, we called it back then, but now it's the CEO and that's, you're nominated by the rest of the principals. So, so we don't, we don't have a lot of tiers. We don't have, we, no. we, we're kind of, once you get to principal level, it's actually very flat. Mm-hmm. And I always say it's a bit like a family in that um, we're a self-organising dynamic. So, right. okay. you know, if you get too big for your boots, someone or sort of cut like you your little brother <laughs> or your little sister, they'll cut you down and get you yeah. back in shape. Uh-huh. Um, and so we, that's really how we, we do operate almost a bit more like a family dynamic of keeping each other in check and mm-hmm. um, making our contribution accordingly. And as a kind of international office, so there are four different offices in different locations. Do each of the principals get together regularly then to discuss? How do you manage that across all of the different practices? So we have, um, yes, we do. So uh, we all get together probably four to six times a year. We video conference all the time. Um, We talk on the phone all the time. We visit the various studios regularly and... um, we're all quite used to travelling, so we kind of, I mean, a lot of our work is even interstate and we're always kind of, most of us are always jumping on a plane at some stage or, you know, we've got periods of time working somewhere else. So it, it's more of a cultural attitude about how you connect, I right. think, more than anything else. You know, there's so much technology that enables yeah. you to connect more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you've just got to have the the, the will to, to make sure that you continue to... Um, develop that. So um, you've been at BVN now for over 17 years. How have you managed the balance between your personal and family life and your professional life? Do you feel like you've had to make make any compromises to get where you've got to now professionally? I think we all make compromises, don't we? Isn't that... I mean, I I just think that it's really hard to... I think it's really... I, I think you... You expand your life based on how much you want to give it in a way and I think that's in everyone's control and it's sometimes you contract and sometimes you kind of expand and you stretch and you overreach um, and you, you might take a compromise in some area to develop something else. I probably err on the side of, you know, wanting to do more than what's possible mm. <laughs> anyway. But, you know, I'm, I'm a single mum with a six-year-old child and it's hard. It's not easy. We try and balance, you know, what we can do and and I think we have a great culture at BVN in that we have really flexible working hours. Um, you can, in a sense, you sort of try and find your pathway and it's more about doing the work that you need to do, but it's not so much about when and how, yeah. um, which is really important. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if people drop in and out as needed. If they need to have a bigger break, they can. And if they want to sort of work more, they can. I don't know. I think I don't think there's an easy answer. I think everyone just has to find their own pathway. But I don't necessarily believe in 
work-life balance as a concept. I think it's more about life and you just you, you have to pave the path of the life that you want to live yeah. to some extent. And, yeah. of course, there are lots of external forces in that, but uh, and life throws things at us that we don't always intend to be thrown at us, but, yeah. you know, but, but we continue to navigate on. And I just, uh, yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer and it really is an individual one. Yeah, sure. I wonder, I, I kind of feel like as architects often many of us are probably quite passionate about our profession as well and there is some element I think that ties into that blurring between personal life and professional mm. life actually and it's not actually that clear entirely all the time so maybe that is also what kind of helps to create, as you say, it's not so much a balance or it's, you know. It's very vocational, isn't yeah. it? Like it is a bit of a vocation and to be honest, like what architect doesn't go on a holiday and yeah. be looking up at everything, yeah. you know. I mean, <laughs> (laughs) we're just like that that's what we do like we're sort of trained to suck in the world around us I think and that's um one of the things I actually love about being an architect is Mm. that training because you realize there's a whole lot of people that don't do that so even Mm. when you're trying to not be involved you're involved and and um in a way we've got such an interesting profession because you know, everyone is touched by the things that we do and place is so fundamental to how we exist as humans Mm. that you're continually kind of in it and therefore in some ways you're assessing it and you're learning from it and you're curious about it and so you sort of never, I mean, there's always thoughts going on, I think. Yeah, you never really switch off, as you say. Yeah, but it's it's fun, right? You know, you sort of go from being in the demanding mode to being in the, like, the fun, enjoyable, curious mode and, you know, sometimes those things coexist but sometimes you're just in the kind of high demand mode and that's that's more challenging. So what's not so fun about our profession, do you feel? Um, I think winning, having to win jobs three times, as I say sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you win a competition and then the government changes something and then you have to win it again and then yep. someone else has a different decision and then you have to win it all over again. Um, I think that's actually really difficult. I think um, the other thing that's difficult is, and actually I, I always find it completely curious, is that clients, they're afraid of establishing loyalties with people and they're afraid of evolving partnerships um, because we we sort of to some extent are slaves to capitalism and think about this continuous you know um, need to be ensuring we're getting the right thing for the right price when in actual fact I think they really miss out on so many opportunities to create partnerships which um, enable them to evolve their businesses mm-hmm. um, the outcomes they're looking for and continue to actually capitalise on the investment that they've made and continue to improve it. Uh, You know, we actually at BBN try and have where we do have partnerships with other people like branding agencies or um, people that help us with leadership and and skills training and cultural issues. I mean, we've had, you know, long-term partnerships with people that go for 12 years or something. But, you know, it enables us to evolve the business I think in a much more successful and um, a deeper way mm. when you when every time you start new with someone else how can you ever con- continue to evolve the best um, outcome right so that actually probably brings us to in terms of partnerships to you partner 
currently with UTS is that correct you've got a collaboration yeah so we've had uh, we've we've got a research project at the moment which we're doing with UTS which we were super excited about so that's um, uh, our second robotics research project the first one we actually did with the University of Sydney it's primarily uh, UTS but also we've got the University of Sydney involved in a peer review role which is brilliant Mm -hmm. Uh, so really our intention with that is that as BVN we don't have to be the beginning point of everything um you know there are other really interesting exciting incredibly clever people around the world that uh, we can connect with and through our connection we can have kind of a greater impact on the things that we're looking at and um, partnering with universities is a really important one in our mind in that you know we can bring I think our skill is actually bringing real-world problems to the table and, you know, we're really good at identifying where gaps are in the market or where things are continually is like a wicked problem that's just not being well solved. And so being able to um, collaborate with universities who bring a different set of skills to the table is fantastic. But we, all our collaborations, particularly on research, are all 50-50 where we have a completely entrenched team that we co-join mm-hmm. and you know we share the ip and so on so we have a again we we set up a highly collaborative arrangement we don't want to just right. buy the services yes. of the university we want to collaborate with them as a just as we would do a project yeah right yeah. so do you think that kind of relationship or collaboration set up is quite important to um, encouraging innovation yeah, I think it's. Re- I think it's really important. You know, we 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 have to look outside of ourselves. Mm. Like we, solutions lie everywhere. Ideas lie everywhere. And if we just keep the blinkers on within mm. the architectural profession, we're actually we're just completely missing, in fact, where the world is going and moving to. And it's yep. something I see so prevalently um, within the architectural profession is that. Mm. I would genuinely say about 90% of the profession is just not looking outside of themselves. They're thinking about architecture in ways that we used to think about it 40, 50, 60 years ago. The world's a very different place now and Mm. um, I just don't think that's a sustainable way of being as an architect. Yeah, absolutely. Or a designer, actually. So is there a certain amount that BBN commits to investing? Is that something that you as principles or is the direct not really we don't have a specific amount again what we really do is end up it ends up being you know particularly driven by either a need or a passion from one of us Um, and we certainly identify that robotics and um, soon artificial intelligence or machine learning will be an important part of our future Um, and so we're kind of making deliberate inroads into how we become participants in that but what that looks like we don't have set budgets we we kind of base it on a case-by-case basis and what's needed and um but I think it's important that sometimes organisations want to go, we want to set a budget up front and we need to, how much do we need to put aside? Well, it's like you can almost, you can come at it from a different angle, which is start with experimenting and you don't have to start huge. You can start on a smaller scale and you can mm. do a series of smaller experiments. You can start to get to know what the problem is and you can start to shape up what actually is your line of investigation that you're interested mm-hmm. in. Yep. And it's hard to do that from a standing start. Like often you actually need to sort of meander your way into that world to understand yep. it better mm. and then through that understanding you start to shape up, you know, what what is kind of going to be your focus and your interest. And mm. so 
that's very much been our journey around robotics yep. is it's it's been sort of four years that we've been on that path and mm-hmm. you you you're building understanding you're building capability and skills and you're um uh it's i think that's a good way to go and if you went to the business and you said okay i want two hundred and fifty thousand to start robotics research and you were doing that from a standing start most yep. businesses would just be like what no <laughs> yeah so I think the way you come at it is really important. Right. Mm. So has that happened? It sounds like that that's sort kind of happened very progressively then for BVN to get this to this point of being at a sort of leadership role in technology and innovation, let's say. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, we, we definitely have um, an experimental approach to things and we like to drop a stone in the lake and let it ripple out and see where the ripples go and see how much we want to expand that. And then as as that happens, we might then elevate certain projects or certain um, lines of interest and turn them into much bigger strategic projects. So we have something called Digital Innovation Ground or DIG Mm -hmm. um, and DIG is open to everyone in the practice and it's really about explorations in digital innovation and twice a year we get it's an open call within the practice to do presentations um, to present your work and then it's open to the whole practice. It's a full day because we have a really good mix of interesting people from people who have really heavy programming backgrounds to mathematicians to astrophysicists to architects to designers to people in finance who are all exploring digital innovation in various aspects of the business and we let all of that we sort of think of it in a way as a pyramid where you've got the base which can be um, a broad set of ideas that are to be honest low cost for us if people go off and explore those in their own time or within gaps in projects and things Mm -hmm. then we've got the kind of mid-level ideas where we'll provide some level of investment into and it might mean that people have some time specifically allocated to those Mm -hmm. Um, and then we have the sort of the big bets which are things like robotics um, where we provide you know strategic investment and financial investment and a dedicated team Mm -hmm. you know so I think having different uh, ways that people can contribute into those rather than just one of those tiers is important because often the big things will bubble up from all of those small things. If you are serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwer at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities, give you insights into working with international clients and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman. That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. So BVN seems to have quite a kind of progressive and innovative company structure by the sounds of things. Do you think it's changed quite a lot over the time that you've been there? Do you, was it, did it always start as quite an innovative um, company? I think, well, structurally, I, I think one thing that's probably important about us is that we're a, we are, as I sort of mentioned, we are an equal partnership, but also all our profits are pulled in one mm. pot. Yeah. 
And whilst that doesn't sound like a big deal, I actually think that's a really big And that's across thing. all offices yeah. internationally. Yes. Right. And there's no imperative for us to compete with each other. Mm. In a way, it kind of flattens the communication structure, not just within the principal group, but also across the whole business. So mm. I think for us, we sort of like to see ourselves as a bit of an ecosystem. Um, we really actively pursue diverse people. As, a, as I mentioned before, we have a whole range of different people and not all our architects, not all interior designers, um, you know, astrophysicists and mathematicians and um, electrical engineers and, you know, various others. Um, And it's actually that mix that makes it more dynamic. That's something that's evolved and probably accelerated over the last six years, I would say, five to six years. I think we're in a really good place, actually, where we have you know, we have a lot of energy. You walk into the studio and you you kind of feel a lot of energy. And for me, that's always the litmus test of an organisation as um, I sort of want to walk in and feel something. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about your philosophy around people and culture in the workplace, specifically at BBM? You kind of were talking about that then. But... Yeah, sure. I think, um, I mean, people are absolutely fundamental to, to us. And one thing that you know, if anyone's ever ever leaves BBN, and they do leave for various reasons, but when they leave, one of the things that's almost consistent that they say is, um, I'm just going to miss the people so much. We're quite non-hierarchical in the way that we deal with each other on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I think there's a lot of energy in the studio, a lot of respect for people. You know, we have, um, we have really great policies, and we've actually just developed some sort of evolutions of those around flexible working hours, um, buying additional leave, more incentives for people that, you know, you just automatically get as being part of BBN. You know, we have an amazing kind of set of social events and things which are all run by our people. They're not top down. And I think all of that manifests itself really nicely into the Sydney studio where one of the key things that we did when we refurbished the studio a year or so ago was that we created a fully self-organising system of furniture. So we spent quite a bit of time developing the technology to enable us to have everything on wheels so that each team has agency over how they want to exist in space. So they don't need to talk to anyone. They can move their team around. They can reorganise the way their desks are. They can add people. They can People can come. People can go. They can move pot plants around. They can move team tables around. You know, all of that is, I guess, symbolic of the fact that we just respect our people and trust mm. them yep. to, and empower them to have agency over who they are and how they want to operate within I think that element of trust is really key in business and is kind of fundamental to success, I think. And I guess it must be tricky, though, to kind of get to that stage where, you know, you can trust people, I suppose, but you have to have that. I mean, you talked about um, the fact that you pull all of the, you know, financially, um, there's a pool across all of the offices. So there must be a, you know, quite a strong level of trust between all of the different directors or principals of each Mm. of those offices then as well. It does go back to that thing of being sort of a self-organising system in the sense that 
if pretty soon if someone's not pulling their weight, it's apparent to everyone. And so you don't actually need a whole lot of complicated structures to deal with that. You've actually, you know, in a way it becomes something that we all sort of hold ourselves to account on and right. hold each other to account on. And so it, you, you, you actually don't need complex structures and hierarchies to deal with that if you have okay. a culture where people are respecting each other and respecting mm. their position okay. um, within the place that they operate in. So you feel that that kind of setup of self, I guess, self-management and, and that sort of idea of flexibility, that ties in a lot to where, I guess, the workplace more broadly as well, not just within our profession, is going, I guess. You know, people want more flexible work environments mm. because there is this sense that you want to feel a bit more in control of your own time and management. And as you say, yeah. I mean, that's part of the work-life balance or whatever you want to call yeah. it too, is being able to, because it isn't, you know, if you have to go and pick up your child at a certain time and then, you know, bathe them and feed them and get them to bed, then you can't continue that work. You have to pick it up later. But I suppose some of the, what I wonder too in practice is some, some people, especially say in more junior roles, may not see when you're working. So it may not be mm. apparent to them that you're working actually really hard or long hours. Mm. How, do you, is there a way that you make that kind of apparent or do you think <laughs> usually the other way around yeah. they go okay. oh no if I, don't, if I don't want to be a principal and have to work that hard right. <laughs> yeah. yeah no look all our policies are open for everybody so it doesn't matter if you just joined yesterday or if you uh, have been there for 35 years I mean obviously role modeling is really important so yeah. you know there's no good saying where um, you know we want to be this kind of culture and then the principal's not enacting that or not holding other people to account if they're not enacting that I think, you know, sort of walking your talk is important. Coming back to your other point about the way organisations want to exist, absolutely, I think people are really moving to this idea of hierarchy is... I mean, we all have hierarchies within business because you need it to manage a successful business. So mm. there is a level of managerial hierarchy, and it's not to say we're anarchic like that. But organisations need to be able to let their people kind of thrive and let them kind of contribute the best that they can and find their place so they can hit their straps within a business. Everyone is different, you know. People, mm. just because I work in one way doesn't mean that's the best way no. that you work, work yeah, Isabella. Exactly. And um, and so what happens often in organisations is just because you work in a particular way, you expect everyone else to work in the same mm. way. Yeah. But you could, if you can allow something more flexible, then people can find their best way mm. and then that will give you their best and that's a much better way to be, I think. Yeah. In terms of, then you mentioned, this idea of this concept of role models I do think that is very important especially in a, a company structure like well a larger company like mm. BBN say it's almost like people learn best sort of through demonstration or seeing you know what other people do and how yeah. they manage their, themselves professionally mm. and through their lives I wondered whether for you having that kind of support and structure you mentioned various role models that you've had mm. throughout your practice as well and, and in this sort of development to the role that you're in now do you think having that broader structure around you has been you know beneficial to you being able to achieve quite a lot professionally like do you think that individually if mm. you had started your own practice it would have been much more difficult oh absolutely I mean, I just have a huge amount of respect for people mm. that have their own practices. I, I think it would. I just think. I just think it's really hard. Um, there's a huge amount of embedded knowledge in a practice like BBN that's been around yes. for 95 years. That yep. you know, you're not starting from the beginning, and so where it, it really all comes down to where do you put your energy? Yep. And when you've got when you're starting a practice from scratch and you haven't done it before, you know, you're actually ending up in, expending a huge amount of energy understanding what it means to 
run a business, mm-hmm. let alone do a project. Yes. Um, and that's such a big balance. And then not to mention the cash flow issues and all yeah. the rest of it, you know, just turning a dollar is pretty hard and stressful. So, uh, Did you ever consider running your own practice? No, never. Yeah. yeah. I just It just never appealed to me. I mean, I really like working with people and I'm, yeah. I really like kind of collaborating with people and um, feeding off others and sort of um, sparring on ideas and things like that. I, I just couldn't see myself sitting. Maybe, maybe I'd do it when I'm older, but I mm. haven't, I haven't sort of had the, I, I, I couldn't see myself working alone. And, and, and I even love being a co-CEO. Yeah. Like it's actually really lovely sharing mm. that role, being able to, you know, Neil and I talk sort of every day. We kind of bounce ideas off each other. We both have different skills and capabilities and perspectives. And mm. so we balance each other out really well, which is, was also great. So I always feel like, I don't know, I get energised by other people. I would find yeah. it hard to have my own practice, I think. And, and not having peer support, can yeah, be quite lonely you know there's a lot of difficult decisions that you need to make and I think they a lot of burdens to bear running your own business mm. um, and doing that alone is actually pretty hard yeah not wanting to dwell too much I don't like to dwell too much on gender issues but I do kind of feel like it does tie into a lot of this and I suppose I wondered how it, it was for you in terms of joining a practice that was clearly started by three men let's say but as mm. you say I guess they had had by a certain time become slightly removed in a sense or well not removed but there was that succession plan that took place and now it is very much a standalone company as BVN which is quite I don't know do you think it is removed from those original people that started it now or or is there still a legacy? um, For the principles I think we we have a very strong sense that we're just custodians of the business and you know we're we're just a point in time actually and we're holding the baton right now and we're going to pass the baton to someone else at some point and you know it's our responsibility to make sure that we kind of look after the practice while we are being the custodians of it. And, I mean, you know, we have uh, Graham Bly will come into the office and Lawrence Neal, you know, we, we are kind of in, in contact regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually we do with all the people that have worked at BVN, we have a lot, we have a very strong sort of alumni in a way where just because you've left doesn't mean we're not friends anymore. Yeah. And so I think that it, it genuinely does exist and a lot of people go and then come back. Um, so I think that that's a sort of a cultural, that's really embedded in the culture. But there was iterations of BBN before the Bly, the Boller and the Neald as well. So right. it actually is a practice which has had a history of evolution. Mm. So in a way, it actually, it is part of our DNA that we're in a constant state of evolution. And that's actually been an interesting a sort of historical path that we followed and I think continue to follow. So do you think that's just kind of part of, as you say, that evolution process that we should accept, say, as women? This is where I kind of have a sticking point in a sense that for our profession it has, was established, it was driven and led so much by a male Mm. kind of... Uh, legacy or leadership mm, and it's mm. it's been quite a long process to balance that out say in gender equality yeah. but at the same time I really appreciate where you're coming from where there was there is a structure there that we should build on it's crazy to keep starting new practices where you as you say you have to mm. keep learning and there's no kind of embedded um, mm. resource that you can draw on necessarily I mean we all draw on each other obviously but but there is an empowerment through building on something that ex- exists as a very solid foundation so perhaps to move forward as women we kind of need to accept that that was the past but now the future is 
is evolving, as you say, and actually women are more embedded and more equal in this Absolutely. Balance. I mean, there's nothing to say that the past has to be the present, and I just don't think... But also I would say that history is really important. Like, you know, the world was a very different place back then. Mm. It's moved in society so far. The uptake of that now is actually something that can change immediately. And one thing that kind of I do feel strongly about is there's no reason why organisations can't make that shift tomorrow, Yeah, quite frankly. There's nothing from stopping them from putting in a new policy in place tomorrow. As BBM, we we have never had a static view of the world, I don't think. And um, actually, I think it's one of our strengths um, because it's enabled us to be agile now as well. So it's probably put us in good stead going forward. But, you know, you do see practices where it might be five men who have been there for 25 years. Frankly, they're practices that if they don't change, there won't be a tomorrow for them. So one way or another, change will be upon them. It's whether you find a pathway into an organisation like that or whether you create something different for yourself. But I do feel that change is a state of mind and change can happen if you've got the will to change. So what do you think, how do you think BVN will change in the future? What will you be looking in for the next generation to take over BVN? I'm actually really excited about (laughs) it. I I am actually genuinely pumped about the future. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and equally slightly terrified. But I think... I don't know. I, people just continue to amaze me. You know, we, 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 you've got to... There's a couple of things. One is that, you know, whilst I am and we are in, really interested in technology and absolutely understand that, you know, technology is, is embedded in our lives and will continue to become more embedded as we move towards the fourth industrial revolution and we've got the integration of the physical, the digital and the biological kind of happening more intensely, we always have to have people at the heart of it. And I think as long as we can keep that in our future, it's a good place. And I hope that the future we have people who care about um, the impact that we're having and continue to um, feel passionate about having positive impact on what we do. Mm. Um, And it doesn't become, you know, that we... We didn't ever become just a commercial organisation that we always kind of continue to care because if we continue to care, we'll we'll be able to kind of navigate the future successfully, I think. So in terms of technology is clearly quite a passion or technology and innovation, quite a passion for BVN as a practice. Where did your passion for technology come from, do you think? I I mean, I think it came from curiosity, to be honest. You know, I'm not the most technologically able person in the room. We've got a lot of other smarter people than me who are sort of technology geniuses. But I think where my personal passion lies is thinking about the future, thinking about what technologies and new technologies will enable us to achieve. You know, like when you think about something like robotics, it actually gives us the ability to return architecture back to craft um, through the use of robotic fabrication or um, complex, you know, large-scale 3D printing and so on. Um, It's not 
necessarily just technology for technology's sake. Um, you do mass timber construction buildings and you can, uh, you know, produce fantastic buildings with great quality that have lower embodied carbon. They can be built faster. They can uh, be environments that are healthier for the occupants. I mean, there's, there's sort of, there's a lot of things that technology can afford us to improve our lives rather than it just being something that's bad that's imposed on us what we need to do is make sure we keep the human at the center of it to ensure your practice is ready to deal with the challenges that the industry will face in the next few years register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural business of architecture and design conference which will be held in sydney on monday the 11th of november 2019 Thanks for listening to this episode of The Business of Architecture and Design. Join us next time to hear the last instalment of Ninochka Tichkowski's journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.